0: We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit ThisIsShoreline.com. Well, I have the distinct privilege to bring the word this morning. Pastor Pilgrim has the privilege to be preaching at another church here in the area. He's preaching at Bethel Mennonite uh, this morning out on Fruitville Road. Uh, it's a church that we've gotten to know uh, the, the pastor, Pastor Sean Otto. We've gotten to know him uh, fairly well over the last couple months. He's a, he's a solid brother, and he is leading that church along with the other elders there in a wonderful direction. Uh, and so he asked Pastor Pilgrim if he would come and teach this morning. Uh, but we are Continuing in our study in Romans 15, Uh, and today we're going to be learning about the ministry heart of our triune God. But, of course, before we study these verses, we need to be reminded about this book that we hold in our hands, because it is God's inerrant word. He has given it to us, and his word is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the men and women of God may be equipped for every good work and complete There is a man named Hippolytus. He was a third-century church father, and he defended the faith against some early heresies that popped up in the church, and he also stood very firmly on the authority of God's word, what we know today as sola scriptura. And this is what he said. There is, brethren, one God, the knowledge of whom we gain from the holy scriptures and from no other source. For just as a man, if he wishes to be skilled in the wisdom of this world, will find himself unable to get at it in any other way than by mastering the dogmas of philosophers, so all of us who wish to practice piety will be unable to learn its practice from any quarter than the oracles of God. Whatever things, then, the Holy Scriptures declare, at these let us look. And whatsoever things they teach, these let us learn." So may we be taught and learn from God's word this morning. Let's pray once again, ask the Holy Spirit to help us. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would open our eyes and minds to your truth this morning. We know that you do the work of guiding us into all truth. And so Lord, as we look at this passage, we ask that you would conform our lives to it, that we would come to it in humility and reverence and be asking how we need to change how we need to look at this passage, Lord. We ask that you would protect us from error this morning as we go through these verses, and that you would have all the glory as we uh, as we are in your word. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. Well, just a, a brief reminder of where we've been uh, since chapter twelve. Paul has been instructing us on how we are to live out our Christian lives. Uh, both in view of believers and unbelievers. And he begins chapter 12 by setting the foundation that all of this is out of worship to the Lord, that we give our lives as a living sacrifice to him, not to conform to this world, but to be conformed to Christ. And the Lord has given us all spiritual gifts to be used for his glory, for the building up of the church. And these gifts are to be used with generosity, with zeal, and with cheerfulness. The rest of Romans 12 gives us marks of a true Christian in how we love our brothers and sisters in Christ and in how we act towards unbelievers. Uh, in chapter 13, Paul zooms out to the topic of civil government, and he shows us that government has indeed been instituted by God and is given a sphere of authority. So we are to pay taxes and we are to submit to governing authorities as long as they stay in their sphere of authority and they do not ask us to disobey God's word. And we always proclaim that Christ is Lord and Caesar is not. Uh, Chapter 14 and the beginning of 15 bring us into more familiar uh, familiar territory what we've been studying recently. And we remember that we are not to quarrel over disputable matters But to pursue peace and mutual upbuilding, no matter if we are the weaker or the stronger believer. And last Sunday, we saw how the salvation of the Gentiles has always been a part of God's plan. It has been prophesied by the patriarchs, promised to the patriarchs, prophesied by the psalmists and the prophets, all leading up to this point. So today we transition into the last train of thought that Paul has for us. And from verse 14 here through the end of the book, we see Paul's personal thoughts, his plans, and some final instructions and greetings as he closes out his letter to the Romans. As many of you know, we, Katrina and I, we've had the privilege, we had the privilege of serving with Global Serve International for 12 years, both in Siberia and here locally as part of the home office staff. And part of my role was to represent the mission organization at churches, at conferences, and at universities. And so I would go to universities like Liberty, I was there several times, and I would go and I would talk with college students. And I've talked with hundreds of students over the years about going into missions. And over time, though, I began to see a theme that had come out in many of our conversations. Although these students were mostly sincere, they love the Lord, they desire to serve Him, they were raised with some form of a Christianized American dream. And it comes out like this What do you want to do with your life? What do you love? What are you passionate about? What talents do you have? Well, pick something that you're passionate about, and the Lord will use that for the kingdom. Now, while it's true that the Lord does desire to work through our talents, through our desires, through the things we love, and that we are called to use them for his glory, this is the wrong place to start. Uh, We've been bought with a price. We are no longer our own. It is not I, but Christ who lives within me. Uh, and our life is a living sacrifice. And so the first place that we need to start when we look at our aspirations in life, our direction in life, whether it's our job, whether it's ministry, desires, the first place we have to look is the word of God. And when we know the heart and character of God, it will help give us direction in our life. And many of the world's greatest pastors and missionaries had amazing talents and different desires, but they gave those up when they understood God's purposes for the world. And I'll just give you one example. The Olympic runner, Eric Little. If you don't know the name, they had a movie based on his life, Chariots of Fire, that won the Academy Award quite a long time ago now. Uh, But it tells the story of how Eric Little, was not going to run on a Sunday. He was a strict Sabbatarian. He had a conviction that he could not run on Sunday. And so he had to give up running in his best race, which was the 100 meters. So he gave that up and he ended up running in the 400 meters, one race that he he didn't do as well in, but he ended up going on to win the gold medal in that race. And so the movie Chariots of Fire chronicles his life up until the Olympics and then during the Olympics. But the movie ends with the gold medal, but his life was so much more amazing after that because Eric Little was given all the accolades that you could you could have he was offered to be the athletics director at prestigious universities to go on the the victory tours but he gave all that up and you know what he did with the rest of his life he went as a missionary to China he went to China, and he actually died in China uh, during the Japanese occupation during World War II. And he died of brain tumors uh, because he was in a prison camp. He wasn't able to get medical help, and he died before the, uh, the prisoners of war could be liberated. And so the world would look at Eric Little's life, and they would say, wow, that was, that was a waste. Look at all that he could have had. And yet he ended up going to China? But of course, we know as believers that that was no waste at all, and that he gave up uh, what, was, what was temporary and what had no lasting earthly value to serve the Lord in some amazing ways. And before he was put in the, chi- the uh, prison camp by the Japanese, he had a very fruitful ministry in China. Well, today we're going to see the focus of Paul's ministry, and that shows us the heart of God and that in turn will help us direct our lives and how we serve him in this life. And so if you are taking notes and we encourage you to do so, we have three main points this morning along with some subpoints under those main points. First, we're going to see Paul's commendation and calling in verses 14 through 16. Then we're going to see Paul's boast. What was he boasting about? And finally, we'll see Paul's ambition. So we'll look again at verse 14. 14 and 15, and we'll see the content of Paul's commendation and calling. He says, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. But on some points I have written to you very boldly by way of reminder because of the grace given me by God. So as we look at Paul's personal note to the church, we remember that Paul had not yet been to Rome. He had not met this church yet. He was writing them from the city of Corinth at the close of his third missionary journey. And do you remember his desire way back in chapter 1? In verse 11, he says, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you so that we could be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. And even though they had not Yet met, Paul speaks to the church very warmly and very boldly, instructing them on some crucial issues, both in doctrine and in practical application. And here he says, I am satisfied. Other translations say, I am convinced. And so what is he convinced of? Well, th- this will give you your three subpoints here. Number one, he's convinced that the believers are full of goodness. Number two, that the believers are knowledgeable. And number three, that they are able to instruct one another. And this is very high commendation. And it happened apart from Paul's influence here in this church. Because Paul did not plant the church at Rome. It was planted by others. We're not sure who planted that church. But only the church in Thessalonica received higher praise in Paul's view than the church at Rome. So what are these three things that he commended them for? Well, first, goodness. And this refers to their high character and their moral living. And we know that goodness is a fruit of the Spirit. It's something that the Spirit produces in us. And in Romans, except for the issue of believers judging one another out of food and the Sabbath, Paul mentions really no particular issues or problems in the church. And they were, of course, not perfect, but we're told that they demonstrated goodness. And this shows that they hated evil and they loved righteousness. They were obedient to the Lord and displayed kindness, generosity, and humility. Next, knowledge. And this is not referring to just general worldly knowledge, but a deep knowledge of the truth of the gospel. And this shows that they love sound doctrine. And the words that Paul said to the Colossian church could very well apply to them. Colossians 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And John MacArthur points out that virtue and truth described here as goodness and knowledge are inseparable. You can't can't separate these. This means that they knew God, they knew his truth, and by the power of his spirit, they were committed to living holy lives. And friends, may that be said of us as well today here in 2022 at Shoreline Church. Well, these two qualities, though, lead us to the third commendation, able to instruct one another, so when we display goodness and when we have a knowledge of the gospel and of sound doctrine, we are able to instruct one another. Other translations use the word admonish, and the Greek word is nutheteo, and It means to encourage, to warn, or advise. And it's from this word that it's used eight times in the New Testament that we have the term nuthetic counseling. And that describes how we are to biblically counsel one another in the faith. And this is an important point, because we learn here that as believers, as members of the body of Christ, we are called to be counseling one another in the truth of God's word. And it's unfortunate, and it's sad, that when we think of the word counseling, that we have been convinced that it has to be done by somebody outside the church— and by a person who is trained in the principles of secular psychology. We seem to ignore the fact that most schools of psychology, most schools of thought in this area are in extreme opposition to God's word. And it continues to be unfortunate that many Christian universities who would say that they stand on the authority and sufficiency of God's word, that they also teach and point their students to secular thinking in this area. And in doing so, they show that they do not truly believe that God's word is sufficient for all matters. And we could talk more about this, but I'll stop here and just say that God's word is very clear that we are called to counsel one another. And also, God has gifted some people in his body to be able to counsel very well. And if you have a desire in this area, if you if you believe you are gifted in this area, we would recommend that you get instructed and certified by ACBC, the Association of Biblical of Certified Biblical Counselors. We have a couple ladies in our church who are certified, uh, and we're very thankful for them. Well, in verses 15 and 16, we move from Paul's commendation to Paul's calling. What was his calling? Well, verse 15 shows us that Paul, and in turn, all pastors are called to teach the whole counsel of God with boldness. And we see this in other places as well. In Acts 9.27, it says that Paul preached boldly in the name of Jesus. In Acts 13.14, it says the same thing about Paul and Barnabas together. And then the same thing happened in Ephesus in Acts 19.8. Paul entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And we could survey the book of Romans and see that Paul did speak to the church very boldly, but I'll just give you a few examples. In Romans 6, he clearly speaks to sin in the life of a believer, saying that we do not present the members of our body as sin to be instruments of unrighteousness. No, we are to present ourselves to God as those alive from the dead, instruments of righteousness. In Romans 8, he says, with no apologies, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. In Romans 12, he confronts our pride and tells us that we should not be thinking of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. And we could go on. Faithful pastors like Martin Lloyd-Jones, R.C. Sproul, and others, they have said that the pulpit is not a place for the pastor to talk about his personal preferences or opinions. He is not to come and to preach the news or to preach the hot topics of the day. The pulpit is where the word of God is to be proclaimed. And it's the pastor's job to make sure that the whole counsel of God is given to the people of God. And the beautiful thing with that is, is that when you are faithful to preach God's word, it addresses the news of the day. It addresses the hot topics of the day. But we don't start there. We start with God's inerrant word. But why did Paul do this? Well, he says that he did it by way of reminder. And it's not that these believers didn't know these truths. They did, but they needed to be reminded. And that's true for us as well, isn't it? All throughout Scripture, we are exhorted to remember the truths of the gospel, the truths of Scripture. We are prone to wander, as we just sang, prone to forget, prone to be too familiar, prone to be calloused and complacent. And that's what Paul encouraged Timothy to do, to keep reminding the believers under his care in order that they would be constantly trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. How was Paul to do this? Well, it says through the grace of God that enabled him to do it. And this speaks to Paul's divine mandate and authority to proclaim the word. And we saw that once again in the very beginning of Romans, the very first verse. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. So this says that he wasn't writing this letter Out of his own personal beliefs, he wasn't writing it just because he had a desire to write it. He wasn't writing it because of his own wisdom. No, he wrote the letter by the order of God to teach the truth of God. Now, there's no more apostles today, but God gives grace to each of us he has gifted every believer all of us by his grace and we must use those gifts according to Romans 12:6 for the building up of the body of Christ Well, verse 16 gives us more specifics as to Paul's ministry calling. Look at verse 16 again. It says, To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. So we know from the book of Acts that Paul had been commissioned to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And he mentions it again here in Romans, Romans eleven thirteen. He says, I am an apostle to the Gentiles. But the main aspect of Paul's ministry in this verse that I want to emphasize is how Paul describes himself as in the priestly service of the gospel of God. Because depending on your upbringing, when you think of the word priest, you may envision a couple different things. You may envision a priest in the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, You may envision a priest in the Old Testament. Or if you had an upbringing like Derek Sharko, you're thinking of Judas Priest, the band. But that's very different. Very different. Uh, However... (laughs) However, under the new covenant in Jesus Christ, we have no need for a priest to offer sacrifices for us. We have no need for a priest to act as a mediator and hear our prayers. The book of Hebrews makes this so clear to us, brothers and sisters. Jesus is the better and perfect high priest who atoned for our sins once and for all. 2 Timothy 2, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Furthermore, the Bible actually teaches the priesthood of all believers. 1 Peter 2, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being, being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And later, Peter says as well that we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own possession, that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And so this is what Paul means when he describes himself as in the ministry, in the priestly service of the gospel. And there's no longer a priestly office today. This has been fulfilled in Christ. And you'll notice that Paul does not call himself a priest. He calls himself here a minister of the gospel. And in the New Testament, the leaders of the church, they are not called priests. They are called uh, elders, servants, pastors, shepherds. And yet, we, each of us, have a priestly ministry before the Lord. Like we prayed at the beginning, it's not a sacrifice of bulls and goats, but a sacrifice of praise, our life as a living sacrifice. And we also see here something very interesting. We see here that those who come to know the Lord through the proclamation of the gospel are figuratively described as an offering to the Lord. And they are acceptable to the Lord by the work of the Holy Spirit who regenerates and sanctifies us. It's a beautiful picture. So we continue in this priestly ministry before the Lord. And every believer who is part of seeing someone come to faith presents an offering to the Lord, as Paul is doing here, presenting an offering of those Gentiles who come to know the Lord. There's a lot to learn and apply in this first point, isn't there? Believers are to be marked by goodness, knowledge in the gospel and sound doctrine and able to counsel one another. We must grow in maturity so we are able to do that. And we saw that pastors and all of us in turn are to proclaim the whole counsel of God with boldness for a couple reasons, to remind the believers, but only through the grace that God has shown us. And we take part in this priestly ministry before the Lord, offering our lives as a sacrifice of praise and an offering of new believers who come to the truth in part because of our proclamation of the gospel. But now we must move on to point number two, Paul's boast. Look at verse 17 again with me. He says, In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. He says, in Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud for my, of my work for God. And other translations use the word glory. If you have the New King James version here this morning, it says, therefore, I have reason to glory in Christ Jesus. But actually, a majority of translations, they use the word boast. The New American Standard, if you have that, it says, therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in things pertaining to God. And it's in the triune work of our God that Paul boasts about in these verses. Well, what specifically? Well, he tells us this in the next two verses, and in doing so, he shows us several things that mark a faithful minister of the gospel. And so here would be some subpoints underneath point number two. There's five attributes that he brings out of what it means to be a faithful minister. First, number one, a faithful minister takes no credit for himself. As Paul says here, I will not venture, I will not even think to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me. And we see this as a pattern in Paul's life. He often spoke about boasting in Christ alone. In 1 Corinthians, we see that God has chosen the weak and the foolish of the world to shame the wise, those who would consider themselves wise in the world. But what is their response? It says, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul says, we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God assigned to us. And at the end of the chapter, he says the same thing. Let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. Friends, we are the weak and foolish. We have no right to take credit for any spiritual work that has been done. But we have Every right to boast in God because he has chosen to work through us, weak and foolish though we are. Sure, if anyone had the so called right to boast, it would be Paul, wouldn't it? Because the Lord used him in ways even above and beyond Peter and John. He wrote most of the New Testament, the majority of the book of Acts is about his ministry. But, of course, how how does Paul describe himself? Well, we know. 1 Timothy 1, very clear. Paul says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to this service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 1. John MacArthur says on this point here, he says, The people God uses to accomplish his will are his instruments. And no Christian should take personal credit for what God does through him. No brush takes credit for the masterpiece it was used to paint. No violin takes credit for the beautiful music the musician makes with it. Neither should a Christian deny or belittle what God has done through him, though, because that would be to deny and belittle God's own work. We don't do that at all. We don't boast in ourselves. We boast in the Lord. So the first mark of a faithful minister is one who does not take any credit for himself. Number two, a faithful minister emphasizes obedience to the Lord. And Pastor Pilgrim mentioned this last Sunday that we don't obey to become saved. we obey because we are saved. And that was part of Paul's ministry. He says here, to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And you don't have to go far in God's word, Genesis 1 and 2, to see that God does expect obedience to His good law. From Adam and Eve to Abraham, to Moses, the Psalms, to Jesus and to the epistles, we see that we are to love God and keep his commandments. He has given us the blessing of his grace and we are to extend his glory by proclaiming the gospel and by also living as a good witness to Christ, to those around us. Again, we are a living sacrifice. And John, the apostle John, makes it clear That obedience is acquainted with joy. It's not a burden for those who love him. John 15, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we follow Jesus' example. Just as Jesus was obedient, we too are obedient. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Did you? Ever sing the little chorus that goes along with this song? This is my commandment, that you love one another, that your joy may be full. Anybody know that? I grew up singing it. It's a good little chorus. Um, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. John 15:10 through 14. So the second mark of a faithful minister is one who emphasized obedience to the Lord. Third, a faithful minister has integrity. Christ worked through Paul by wo- by both by what he said in word, if you look at verse 19, by word, what he said, and deed, by what he did to bring the Gentiles to obedience. And Paul's life was consistent, we know, with the message that he was preaching. And may that be the same for us. May the Lord bring us to repentance as he reveals areas of hypocrisy in our lives. Because one of the biggest problems in the church today is so-called pastors who are clearly in it to tickle ears, and they live their lives in disobedience to God's word. They shipwreck the faith of some, and the world mocks Christ when their sins become known. A faithful minister, of course, is truly saved and and lives not a perfect life, of course, but a life of repentance, a life of integrity, desiring to live a life of obedience in order to display the matchless worth of our Savior. Well, we see the fourth and fifth marks in verse 19. Look at verse 19 again. By the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, So that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. And so our fourth mark is that a faithful minister relies on the power of the Holy Spirit. And just as a note, as we begin this, have you already seen the Trinity in these verses? It's so clearly displayed. It's wonderful to see. Called by God as a minister of Jesus Christ, working by the power of the Holy Spirit, we see each member of the Trinity and his work on display. As we were meeting this week in our teaching group, Shane reminded us that it was said that as Charles Spurgeon climbed the steps to the pulpit, Uh, in the Metropolitan Tabernacle each Sunday, as he climbed those steps, he would say to himself with each step, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Why did he say that? Because he was nervous? No. No, it's because he knew that the power was in how the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God. The power is not in his oratory skills. The power is not in his personality. The power is in the word of God. He knew what happened as he preached the word. We just sang a new song of worship to the Holy Spirit this morning. But another great song that we sing here from time to time is the modern hymn, Holy Spirit, by Keith and Kristen Getty. And the first verse goes like this. Holy Spirit, Living breath of God, breathe new life into my willing soul. Let the presence of the risen Lord come, renew my heart, and make me whole. Cause your word to come alive in me. Give me faith for what I cannot see. Give me passion for your purity. Holy Spirit, breathe new life in me. And Paul is clear about this in verse 19, that everything he did, In his ministry was only by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the early church, the books of the New Testament were still being written, and so they did not have God's complete revelation that we have the privilege today to hold in our hands. And so in this time, God sometimes used signs and wonders through the apostles to confirm the message of the gospel. Today, however, we have no need of miraculous signs and wonders because we have God's complete inerrant word. And the sign, and this is not one of the five, but another sign you could say of mark of a faithful preacher is not any signs, but sound doctrine. Does the preaching match God's word? And you could think of the Bereans in Acts 17. It's very interesting because just in Acts 16, we see how Paul was miraculously delivered from jail. We have the story of the Philippian jailer, uh, Acts 16.31, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. And then it's followed up in the next chapter with the story of the Bereans. Now the Bereans would have undoubtedly heard about all the miraculous things that was happening through Paul, through Peter, and John. They may have even seen some of these signs. We do not know. But what was their response? They didn't hear these things and say, oh man, wow, look at these. We hear these guys are doing amazing things. They must be men of God. No, 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 no. What was their response? It says that they searched the scriptures in order to see if what Paul was proclaiming was true. And they would have searched the Old Testament to look at the prophecies and see if that was accurate according to the Messiah. So that may that be our posture as well, as we evaluate churches and pastors, different teachers. Now, this does not mean that God has stopped healing. We're We're told to pray for those who are sick, and we know that God does heal according to his time and purpose. And sometimes we even hear of amazing things that the Lord is doing around the world. But the apostolic age is long over, and we do not need or do we see the types of signs and wonders that took place in the New Testament. And anyone, friends, who is walking around today claiming apostolic authority to heal or do miracles on command is a charlatan and a false teacher. We are to mark and avoid these people. But truly, though, the most miraculous... Authentication of the gospel is not signs and wonders. It has and it always will be the regeneration of a human soul from sinner to saint. The work that God does. We've gone from being an enemy of God to being invited to his table. We've gone from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And the power of the Holy Spirit is most powerfully demonstrated in the change of the human heart. And so our final mark of a faithful minister is a faithful minister very simply completes his work. And we see this in how Paul summarized his ministry up to this point. He says, from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry. And so the faithful minister completes what God has called him to do. And we know from Paul's missionary journeys, I'm sure you probably have maps in the back of your Bible that you could, you could see where he went, uh, that he traveled through modern-day Turkey, he traveled through Greece, Macedonia, and even to Illyricum. Well, where is the Lyricum? Well, uh, today it is located in what used to be called Yugoslavia, uh, but now is a couple countries, Kosovo, Serbia, Montenegro, and Bosnia, Herzegovina. It's basically just north of Greece a little ways. Uh, And the travel that Paul had, it spanned 1,400 miles. He traveled quite a bit. And we know, of course, that he goes to Rome, and eventually he goes to Spain as well. So through trials, through multiple persecutions, sickness, hardships, shipwrecks, tough travel, through friends deserting him, Paul was faithful to complete his ministry. And we know some of his last words, don't we? Where he says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. So a faithful minister completes his work. Well, we have to move on to our final point, but I would ask you, friends, that you would please pray for myself and Pastor Pilgrim in these categories. Uh, these five marks, among others, this is the ministry emphasis and character qualities that we long to have and what we aspire to. And so please pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to produce these in us and that we would continue to grow in them. And if you should have to move away someday, someday, And you're evaluating churches. These are just five really practical marks and things to be looking for in the pastors of the church that you're considering. So lastly this morning, we see Paul's ambition. And this is in verse 20. Let's look there again. He says, And thus I make it my ambition... To preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation, but, but as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. So, in these last two verses, we see an overall look at Paul's ministry focus, and we see the ministry heart of God. And as we look at the ministry of Paul, we know that he was a pioneer missionary church planner. He preached the gospel where no one had been and where the name of Christ had not been named. And this focus continues to give us our marching orders for today, as there are still, almost 2,000 years later, places where the name of Christ has not been named. People groups who have no church and the Bible has not yet been translated into their language. But remember, this focus doesn't just come from Paul. It comes from the very heart of our triune God. We were reminded about it last week in the previous verses when it was prophesied that there would be praise among the Gentiles, that in Christ the Gentiles would have hope. Abraham was blessed so that his descendants would be a blessing to all nations, to the world, and Israel was raised up as a missionary nation to the world. And we, as Abraham's spiritual offspring, we continue in this work today. And if you've been at Shoreline for any length of time, you've heard this over and over again. And we will keep stressing it because this is at the heart of our God. And the church in America has largely lost a biblical missiology. The word missions has been downgraded to mean everything under the sun. And the majority of missionaries and missionary dollars go to already reached places. Now we're about to see here that it's not wrong, of course, to send resources and money to reach places. But we have it way out of whack in our current time. Paul says that the focus should be to these unreached places of the world. But then he follows that up with, lest I build on someone else's foundation. And so if we look at this from another angle, we see that building another pastor's foundation is part of God's plan for establishing and maintaining his church. You remember 1 Corinthians 3.6? It says that I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So in this situation, Paul had come in. He had planted the church. And Paul came along later and continued to pastor and to help build up the church. And for those who are church planners, especially missionaries, the goal is to always pass on the church to a Timothy, to an Apollos, to a plurality of elders who are qualified according to the qualifications in God's word, to indigenous leaders that have been raised up, that will continue to build on that foundation and grow and mature the church That is always the focus, to work missionaries, to work themselves out of a job. Well, in concluding this thought, Paul quotes from Isaiah here, "Isaiah 52:15, "To show God's desire for the word, the world." We can read it again that those who have never been told of him will see and those who have never heard will understand. And so the context of Isaiah here in chapter 52 is the exaltation of Jesus Christ after his completed work on the cross. Uh, But Paul uses it in a broad application to illustrate the process of worldwide evangelism. Uh, This, of course, has its ultimate fulfillment in when Christ returns, when every knee will bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. So friends, what do we learn about the ministry heart of God this morning? Well, we could work backwards in our text and see a couple things. First, we see that he desires the gospel to be preached where there is no knowledge of his son. That the church planner must rely, and we in turn as well, we must rely on the power of the Holy Spirit and preach the true gospel along with the whole counsel of God's word with boldness. When that is done, the pastor can be confident in the work he has accomplished with all boasting going back to Christ for any fruit that comes of his ministry. And for all of us, as we as believers grow and we are sanctified by the Holy Spirit, we will display goodness, knowledge of sound doctrine and be able to instruct, to admonish, to counsel one another in the faith. And all of this only happens because of the grace of God that has been shown and displayed in our lives through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Although Paul is writing specifically about his his ministry here, when we zoom out, we see the larger picture of God's desire for the world and for every believer. And so our response to this is thankfulness for his work and obedience to his word. And so the question I'd like you to consider as we close this morning is this. Does the direction of my life agree with the ministry heart of God? And this is for young and old. Every station of life And we see from this passage that it's his desire for the gospel to go to every nation. It's his desire that the church would walk in the fruit of the Spirit, growing into maturity, instructing one another. So do the decisions you make in life reflect this? Because we tend to pile up on one another. We tend to pile up and pile up and pile up on the same foundation. And yet that's that's not what God has called us to do. He's called us to grow into maturity and to go out by discipling one another, by planning churches in other ways. And if you are here this morning as, as well, and if you have not been born again, if you have not come to know Christ, if you have not truly repented, that means to turn from your sin and to trust only in Christ. These last two verses quoted from Isaiah 52 have special meaning for you as well. Because according to this, that those who have never been told that they are blind, they do not see. And those who have never heard, they are still walking in foolishness. They are not walking in wisdom. They do not know. And so it's our prayer this morning that you would repent and trust in Christ alone to save you. We cannot trust in our own goodness. We cannot trust in anything we have done, whether it's walking down an aisle, raising a hand, praying a prayer, being baptized, trying to do good things, attending on Sundays, none of that will save. Before Christ, all our righteousness are filthy rags before the Lord. We are told that we are condemned. We stand condemned before God. We are under his wrath, and we are headed for hell, if not for the work of Christ on the cross. God sent his son to be the savior of the world, and we would love for you to know with 100% certainty that you are his child, that you have been born again. So, please. There's so many of us here that would love to talk with you, myself included. We can pray with you afterward, but I want to close with the lyrics of another modern hymn from Keith and Kristen Getty, and it's called For the Cause, and it's very appropriate for us this morning. For the cause of Christ the King, we give our lives in offering till all the earth resounds with ceaseless praise to the sun. For the cause of Christ we go with joy to reap, with faith to sow, as many see and put their trust in the Son. It's Christ we proclaim, the name above every name, for all creation, every nation, God's salvation through the Son. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you again for your word this morning, for the truths that are here for us. We thank you that we see Holy Spirit, your work on display. Lord, please help us. Please, Lord, we come in repentance to you this morning when we work out of our own strength, when we do not rely on your power to work through us, Lord. We thank you that we see all of the Trinity on display, that we work because of the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We work because we have been called by God. We have been shown such amazing grace by him, Lord. And so we ask this morning that you would work through us as a congregation, as this church here. Lord, that we would be about your business, that we would consider in our lives the direction we are headed in. Lord, may we be about extending your glory to every nation, the salvation that comes through the Son. And so, Lord, we we come in song now, and we thank you that this work can only be accomplished through Christ and through Him working in us. It is not I but yet Christ who lives and works in us. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 1030 a.m. at the port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at calvaryshoreline.com. God bless you.